and welcome to Breaking the Curtain with me, Chrissy, and me, Joss. Don't forget to silence all phones. Or don't, it's a podcast. And most importantly, enjoy the show. Hello! How are you doing, my friend? I am doing very well this rainy September mm. Sunday. How are you? Very well. I had a delicious cinnamon dolce ice latte with pumpkin cold foam on top, and now I'm ready to record this wacky episode. This is very much your niche. This is totally my niche. If you didn't already know, friends, my brain is 50% musical theater and 50% true crime. It's pretty much her love language when you bring up either topic. Yeah, so... You can imagine my shock when I recently learned that there are many musicals about Charles Manson and the Manson family because a lot of you loved our episode from season two about Lizzie the Musical slash Lizzie Borden. We decided to record another true crime meets musical theater episode. We'll get into the Manson inspired musicals in a hot minute, but first some backstory. Joss, I know you don't like true crime and horror. So I imagine your knowledge of the Manson family is, like, fairly slim. So I guess this will, like, sort of be informative for you as well. You know, I watched enough Criminal Minds to Mm -hmm. kind of know the basics. You know, Sharon Tate, Helter Skelter, cults, satanic panic, the whole trying to start a race war thing. Right. I just never wanted or needed the gory details. But uh, here I am. Here you are. Here I am. Here I am. Here all of you are who clicked on an episode about a Charles Manson musical, which in itself is just bizarre. But you know what? We're spending the next 35 to 45 minutes together. Let's get through it. So here we go. Of course, this episode comes along with a listener trigger warning as it involves cults, murder, sexual assault, and psychedelics. I will do my absolute best to avoid being unnecessarily graphic when retelling the events that took place in the summer of 69. Which unfortunately has nothing to do with the Brian Adams song. Unfortunately. As I so horribly found out. (laughs) I'm going home. Chrissy, go for it. All right. So Charles Manson. Where to even begin? Well, you'll eventually see that to get from point A to B to C, in order to somewhat comprehend what happened, I'll have to take you through his life from the very beginning. So Manson was born Charles Miles Maddox on November 12th, 1934 in Cincinnati, Ohio, to Kathleen Maddox, a 16-year-old alcoholic and prostitute. His biological father abandoned her before she gave birth, so from the start, it's already like a little bit rocky here. Kathleen would later marry William Manson, but the marriage ended not long after it began, and Charles was placed in an all-boys school at the age of 12. He was rejected in his attempts to return to his mother, and uh, ended up growing up with his mother's relatives in what was an allegedly neglectful and abusive household. By the age of 13, he began committing petty crimes, including robbery, and in 1949, was detained at the Indiana Boys' School where he endured sexual assault and abuse. Over a period of several escape attempts and transfers to numerous juvenile centers, he began committing sexual assaults and was ultimately transferred to the Ohio Federal Reformatory in 1952. 
At 19 years old, Charles was released to his aunt and uncle, where he appeared to settle down, marrying a woman and moving to Los Angeles. However, he continued to commit crimes. In 1957, he was sentenced to three years in a Los Angeles prison, during which his wife filed for divorce. During his time in prison, Manson began exploring ways to achieve Hollywood fame. He took guitar lessons and developed ambitions of becoming a singer-songwriter. He also studied religion as a tool of control and manipulation, especially Scientology. If you don't know what that is, there's a great series with Leah Remini that came out in like 2016, 2017. Go check that out. It's fascinating to say the least. He was released from prison on March 21st, 1967 and moved to San Francisco. Manson traveled throughout California, approaching women in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, as well as Los Angeles' Venice Beach. He presented himself as a religious figure, luring them to follow him by surrendering their identities and past to him completely. During the fall of 1967, Manson and the family he gathered moved to Los Angeles, eventually settling at Spawn Ranch, an old film and television set in the western San Fernando Valley. As I mentioned earlier, Manson had goals of becoming a famous singer-songwriter. He started making connections within the music industry with music producers and even actors. A standout would be Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, whom he made the connection with through two of his female cult members while they were hitchhiking. Days after first meeting, Manson and the family actually moved into Dennis Wilson's home, where they all did drugs and participated in orgies. The friendship between Manson and Wilson came to an end in the summer of 1968 when Wilson took Manson to record at his studio, where he had a disagreement with Wilson's producers and ended up pulling a knife on them. That wouldn't be the last time Manson met with a producer. Terry Melcher, the son of Doris Day, was one of the best known in the business. Terry met Manson at a party at Dennis Wilson's house. Melcher's associate, Greg Jacobson, became fascinated with Charlie's mind and lifestyle. He eventually talked Melcher into coming down to the ranch to hear Manson and the girls play. This, of course, thrilled Manson because he was absolutely certain that Terry Melcher would sign him. After hearing them play, Terry returned to the ranch with the friend he thought might be interested in recording Manson and company. Of course, this friend was not interested in signing Charlie. Manson went into a rage. He couldn't comprehend how he wasn't getting signed. He even lied to the family, telling them that he was indeed signed and would be making it big now. This all, of course, would lead to the infamous events that took place. He ordered his follower, Bobby Beausoleil, to steal money from and kill his friend, Gary Hinman. This was the turning point that escalated the Manson family from an eccentric group of free hippy-dippies to a crazed group of murderers. The family members attempted to blame Hinman's death on the Black Panthers by writing political piggy and a Black Panther symbol in blood on the wall. But Beausoleil was arrested for the murder and taken into custody on August 6, 1969. Manson feared that Beausoleil would crack under pressure while being interrogated and spill that Manson constructed the murder of Hinman. On August 8, 1969, Manson ordered members of the family to pay a visit to Terry Melcher's house and murder everyone there. However, Melcher had already moved out of 10050 Cielo Drive. It was now home to a very pregnant actress named Sharon Tate and her husband, director Roman Plansky. 
Manson's goal was to have his followers kill everyone at the house and make the killings look like the Hinman killing in order to divert police suspicion from the captive Beausoleil. This part is a bit graphic, so just a warning to anyone listening. If you want to pause here and fast forward, you can do that as well. Family member Tex Watson drove to the estate with Susan Atkins, Patricia Kremwinkle, and Linda Kasabian. When they arrived after midnight, they encountered a car driven by Stephen Parent, an 18-year-old who had been visiting the estate's caretaker where he lived in the guest house. Watson shot Parent before the group broke into the main house. There were four people in the home. Celebrity hairstylist Jay Sebring, a close friend and ex-boyfriend of Tate's. Polanski's friend, Wojciech Frokowski, who was visiting while Polanski was in Europe. And Frokowski's girlfriend, coffee heiress, Abigail Folger. Before leaving the property, Atkins wrote the word pig on the door in Tate's blood to leave a sign, as ordered by Charlie. Their lives were tragically and brutally taken for absolutely no reason. Manson was displeased with the state of the house, feeling that it wasn't as brutal enough to stir a big panic. On April 10, 1969, Manson and six of the family members committed another murder. This time, Manson joined in on the LaBianca murders. They drove around looking for potential victims when they arrived in the neighborhood of a home in which they had attended a party a year prior. The home belonged to a successful grocery company owner, Lino LaBianca and his wife, Rosemary. On the walls of the living room, death to pigs and rice were written in blood. At first, the LAPD did not make the connection to the previous murders. Of course, Manson and members were eventually captured and after a trial, they were sentenced to prison, where Manson spent his days until he passed away in 2017. <sighs> that was a lot of information. How are we doing, friends? Not too great, but, um, no. 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 I won't lie, I kind of tuned out a bit of that, so we're good. Um, yeah, that was hard to read. Kept the hard pausing. part is <laughs> over. Now we can be judgmental. So let's get into it. Yeah. So now, like the both of us, you're probably surprised to discover that there are quite a few musicals about Manson. The first that we'll discuss is probably the most popular. The world premiere of Charles Manson, Summer of Hate, Das Musical, began playing at the Thalia Theater in Germany on September 24th, 2014. The show was directed by 39-year-old playwright Stefan Pucher, who graduated in American Studies at the University of Frankfurt and was co-written by Pucher with Christopher Yu and Suzanne Meister. The end result was a staged musical trip between L.A. and the Death Valley, hippie ideals and the death cult, the excesses of rock star life, and the means of finding food from the rubbish bins of American civilization. It was presented with dialogue in German and songs in English. Actor George Pohl played the role of Charles Manson, while a supporting ensemble of seven other performers portrayed his hippy-dippy family members. The stage show was hardly satire and provided a look into Manson's failed music career and his relationship with his followers who were known as the Manson family. This came as no surprise. There have been released albums of Manson's song demos and recorded songs from various musicians, including Guns N' Roses, The Beach Boys, and Marilyn Manson covering his songs. Alongside his original music, the show featured monologues taken from Manson and recordings of Manson talking. 
video recordings of himself and his followers and photographs projected onto a large screen. I guess this is kind of like what we discussed in our Bonnie and Clyde episode. 50 some years since the LaBianca Tate murders occurred and people are still fearful of him and this story. Obviously, I mean, there's he's no joy to talk about. That's for sure. But it is something that is a part of history in America. It changed the world at the time and still has such a big impact. It was the end of the summer of love and freedom, you know, that sense of like safety. It makes sense that this musical would have premiered in Germany rather than somewhere in America. Listen, right off the bat, I hate it. Um, <laughs> you know, like, it comes back to how I feel about true crime anything. It's monetiz sure. monetization off of something horrible that happened to someone else. Um, yeah. Charles Manson is not someone to make a musical about. You mentioned our Lizzie episode earlier, and the reason why Lizzie mm. works is because... There's a century or two in between that. And also it's done in a way that like it's not meant to be realistic or garner sympathy for her. Now, I don't know right. what this bullshit is about, but it's too soon. And like, really, it's especially with from what I can gather about Mr. Manson here is that he wanted to be a big deal and... A yeah. superstar. So, like, mm -hmm. shut the fuck up. Don't talk about him. Don't feed into that fantasy he had for himself. Disgusting. Yeah, I totally agree with you. And like you said, it, it's only making him more known in the media once again if you're putting out musicals. And another thing is if they're using his songs, so his work that he so badly wanted to be famous off of, then you're really just giving it another life, which is so gross. Yeah, like, let's stop giving shitty people what they want. Amen. So, <laughs> so an off-off Broadway musical titled Manson the Musical! Exclamation point, opened on October 25th, 2009 at the Crane Theater in New York. It was set to 60s pop music with a live band on stage who at times would also portray the Beatles, the Monkees, and the Beach Boys. It was produced by End Times Production with direction by Russell Dobler and choreo by Tiffany Harriet. Unlike Charles Manson's Summer of Love, Manson the Musical was not exactly what an audience member would expect when it came to a live production based on the notorious cult leader and family. It featured sex jokes, humor, and even played out two murder scenes. Jesus. Yeah, it's really fucking gross to do that, friends. Yeah, but really gross. It's strange because throughout the years, Manson and the family have been referenced in tons of musicals and plays. So many. Possibly yeah. the best known being the Manson trio in Pippin. In an interview with the 2013 revival director, Diane Paulus, she recalls that Bob Fosse was very interested in Charles Manson. It was the idea of the leading player as a kind of charismatic leader, kind of a cult leader. That's a particularly dark way to see it, but it was really illuminating to understand that reference had significance for Fosse, the juxtaposition of song and dance and people being killed. Lynette Squeaky from, who was a member of the Manson family, is featured within Sondheim's Assassins, which is so weird as well. I mean, okay, I can forgive it because it's in Assassins and Assassins is like its own thing with all these crazy folks, but... Still weird to think about. 
You know, for me, if you're going to stage this sort of thing, taking it outside of reality mm. is always a good idea. I mentioned that with Lizzie, and I'm going to say something like Pippin. It's called the Manson Trio, but it's not like Pippin has no actual information about Charles Manson. It's a reference for audience members. And at the time that Pippin first came out, it makes sense to me. That makes Absolutely. sense. That is a reference that's a commentary on the time and adds a layer. References and minimal stuff like that is fine. And Assassins, well, Assassins also breaks reality because he's taking all these horrible people from history and putting them in a room where they talk mm -hmm. about what they did and why. Which, again, we're taking it outside of reality, outside of the biomusical, outside of the sensationalism that comes with these names. So that I have a little bit more leeway for. Um, yeah. But yeah, like, it's man, very interesting. actually, in the case of Pippin, I think that was rather bold of Bob Fosse, considering the proximity so of the times. Yeah. You know, but I think, again, it works as a subtle reference instead of being like, hey, guys, come see my musical about Charles Manson. Right? Like, ew. Yeah. No, it's very interesting. And yeah, I would say Pippin going in that culty Manson route with Manson Trio and, and just the show in general uh, was an artistic choice. And it's one that I think works really well. I find because it's Pippin, subtle. Like for me, Pippin has always been a show that gives me the chills in a creepy way. Yeah. Yeah. That's what's so good about it yeah. because it has that, like it said, like Diane said, the just juxtaposition of a fun song and dance show and yeah. you know, the the darker side of it, which one day we'll do an episode on Pippin because there's a we lot there. We certainly and, will. And and we'll get into it. But you know, I get the point that he's trying to make. So that's using it as an artistic reference to drive home a point compared to sensationalizing a shitty person. And I know I'm swearing a lot, but because of the content, this episode's already explicit. So We're deal with heated. it. We're <laughs> heated. Deal with it. I can't wait until October's over so I don't have to do any more of these true crime <laughs> episodes. <laughs> I... I've been enjoying them because I find things that we otherwise probably wouldn't have discussed, like Manson musicals. That's bananas. That's crazy. And I'm glad I wasn't in the audience to see any of that because while I wouldn't shame anyone for going to see a Manson musical, I mean, I have watched my fair share of you know, films about Manson and documentaries just for, you know, educational purposes. It is a part of history. I think it's a little bit of a step too far for me to go see a musical about him or to see his work on display like it was in the Summer of Hate musical. It's interesting that we're recording this episode now and we recorded Bonnie and Clyde a couple weeks ago because now there's all this discourse on social media about the new miniseries about Jeffrey Dahmer. <gasps> You're about right. true crime in that. And I won't get too much into it. Chrissy and I tried the first two episodes. No, it I finished not... it. You finished it? Okay, well, it wasn't for me, so I kind of gave up. But right now, there's a lot of discourse online talking about, well, a very similar thing. How soon is too soon? 
how do you make something that is strictly educational? How do you market something meant to be absorbed as entertainment in a respectful way? Right. And yeah, like Netflix is under heat because of a tweet that they put out about a scene from the show that they used in a very like um, cavalier kind of way talking Mm, about it. I didn't see that. Well, they were like, oh, can't stop thinking about this scene. Go watch it on Netflix. And it was the scene with um, the sandwich. No, it was the scene with the 14 year old boy in the second episode when the police returned him to Dahmer. And so that was a very lighthearted, lighthearted way. The tweet is still up. You can go see it. I can't believe Netflix didn't take it down. But again, it's... can't believe they wrote it in the first place. Exactly. But again, it's marketing and promoting something like this as entertainment, which, to be fair, TV shows, movies, musicals are entertaining. They're meant to be absorbed as entertainment. But there's a line with respect, and especially something like Dahmer, which is so, so soon. It's very different from, like, if there were to be a Bonnie and Clyde movie come out this year. There's a hundred years in between it. Yeah. So there's kind of, but even then, like, how do you do it in a way that is respectful? Well, I can tell you a way, kind of. <laughs> so uh, it was 2019. Yeah, 2019. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood came out where, spoiler, Sharon Tate was a main character in the film. And it went through uh, a bit of her life story from when she was in Hollywood as an actress up until what would be her death in, how would I say that, in the events of which did actually occur. But in the film, Sharon Tate and everyone in that house end up murdering the Manson gang. So, like, they fight back and they actually win in this version. And it's kind of weird. It is a bit weird, um, but it is very not cathartic. That's a really weird word for me to use. But to see Sharon Tate and Jay Sebring and everyone in that house actually win against Manson, it was like a rewrite of history, and I do know that Sharon Tate's sister approved of the entire film, and she was there for like every step of the way. So before we end the episode, um, I watched a film the other night in preparation for this, and it's called Charlie Says, and I really thought, you know, okay, so this is a more... This film came out just a few years ago, I think maybe the year before, the year before Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And this one was mostly about the women who committed the crimes in the Manson family and them kind of like realizing like, oh, shit, he wasn't a god, you know? Um, And we did this crime and what for? Like he made us do that. Anyways. The the death scene was so graphic in the Sharon Tate uh, murder scene that I had to turn it off. I was like, I was so shocked that a movie that is showcasing these women and, and what they did, and I don't know if the director was a man or a woman or whatever, but I was just so shocked that it would be so graphic. And I know that they were probably just trying to show what really happened. And it is something that 
when you're watching anything about Charles Manson and the Manson family, you should always keep in mind what they did and how horrific it was because there's no way out of that. They were gross, messed up, fucked up people. And if you're talking about him or reading any book about him, you have to keep that in mind and not let it like you said, become something that's so sensationalized. But just to see it done in a film like that, I was surprised, man, because you would think they'd have the same thought process when creating um, an art form that they'd want to do it less graphic. I don't know. Yeah, like, at the end of the day, a piece of work about murders, somebody like Charles Manson should not make you feel sorry for Charles Manson. But also, how do you... That's, that's another, I think, good question for people working on those things. How do you portray the um, right. absolute level of horror of what they did without it becoming gore porn? Which I have a huge issue with, um, <laughs> just in general, even with horror movies that aren't technically based on anything. And so I have a huge, huge issue with things that are gory for the sake of being gory and for shock value. I think as a society, it's one of the worst things that we do. Um, that being said, if that's something you're into, like, I don't judge you. I just, I say that there's a mindfulness that needs to come with it. Yeah, and I think there is also just like a def a different level of something being fictional and knowing it's fictional compared to something that actually took place like Bonnie and Clyde like the Manson murders you know so yeah just be mindful when you're creating art because ugh, and when you're consuming it yeah yeah absolutely Ugh. anyway can we wrap this up I'm getting nauseous yeah well you know what we're gonna end the episode so god <laughs> This is our second to last September episode, which is so weird. I feel like we just started this. I feel like we would we have been planning this for a while, but we just started recording, if that makes sense. Really? I feel like we've been working on it forever, which we have. Yeah. I'm like, we have been. Okay, is it November yet? <laughs> right? Well, we do have a very exciting interview coming out this upcoming week. It's going to be big fun. It's going to be big fun. Big fun. And as of today, September 25th, when we are recording this, we hope you had an awesome time at the Broadway flea market. That is my favorite day of the year. I obviously didn't go this year, um, but I would love to hear what you found, who you took photos with. I want to hear all the details. I love hearing what everyone did on Broadway Flea Day. Broadway's Christmas. We are almost there. <laughs> As always, I'm Chris. I'm nauseous. And together we are breaking the curtain. Breaking the curtain. <laughs> um, and uh, we're going to be sleeping with the lights on tonight. That's not yeah. even funny. That's, that's going to be the reality of this. Anyway, that tune in <laughs> for a much more lighthearted interview coming up this week, followed by... A less murdery show history episode. Creepy stuff. Is it? Oh, you're right. All right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Okay. No character death in the next one. Yeah, that is a thing. All righty. Well, shall we say it? See you later. See you next time. <laughs> See you later. Bye, friends. Bye, guys.